We always appreciate so much this opportunity to address the uh, student body. Uh, we are actually told to preach. We don't ask to preach. And so we come always with a sense of reluctance, not because we don't love to preach, but because the, uh, just the awesome responsibility to fill this pulpit and address men that are called to the gospel ministry. And so it is with always with great, great uh, uh, personal reservations that we approach this pulpit and uh, address you men of God. A few weeks ago, our dean, um, I suppose, shocked us, uh, shocked me anyway, uh, when he mentioned to us that it, uh, the small percentage of men who begin the ministry that actually finish well. And that was a startling statistic. And it just drives fear into your soul to recognize that we can have so many involved in seminary preparation and then get involved in ministry and and then toward the later years, the sunset of their lives, how few of them really finished the course and finished the race well. And that, uh, you know, that does something to you when you're involved in ministry. First of all, involved in ministry, you want to be able to finish well. And secondly, involved in preparation of men for ministry, we want them to finish well. And there are, I guess, many, many reasons why... Uh, people or men that are in ministry perhaps drop out of ministry. Sometimes it's because of perhaps not adequate preparation for ministry. You heard about those two seminarians that were uh, out celebrating. They were out celebrating in a coffee shop. And the waitress, uh, they said to the waitress, we're here to celebrate because we just finished our puzzle. It took us seven months to complete this puzzle. And she said, seven months to complete this puzzle? They said, yes, seven months. The box said two to four years. <laughs> Some haven't caught it yet, Dr. Mayhew. <clears throat> but, you know, sometimes preparation is uh, lack of it. And so we encourage for us to be well prepared for ministry. That is, doesn't guarantee you'll finish well, but it does, it does take us a long ways into finishing well. The other one is to make sure that we are morally fit, morally fit. Uh, we sometimes lose a number of men because of, of the fact that we're not morally fit. And I want to address something else this morning in our chapel that we should take note of as we think about ministry. Some other insidious temptation that comes our way that I suppose can, uh, can eliminate so many, especially in this current age in which we live. I want to draw your attention this morning to 1 Kings chapter 13. Please turn in your Bibles to chapter 13 of 1 Kings. 1 Kings chapter 13. The Old Testament chapter 13, 1 Kings. Verse 1 simply says this. Now behold, there came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord, while Jeroboam was standing by the altar to burn incense. There came a man of God from Judah to Bethel by the word of the Lord. When the church has problems today, we usually form a committee. You ever notice that? When the church has difficulties, we form committees. But when God sees difficulties, he sends a man. He sends a man of God. And when there are difficulties arise and problems arise and there is a necessity for a solution, God sends a man, a man of God. And we ought never forget that. 
that your place in God's plan is very, very important. God sent a man to solve a problem that had arisen in the nation of Israel. We're going to follow that for a few moments, this man of God that God sent. He was sent to solve a problem. He was sent, secondly, with a specific call, a specific call from God. And then, and then thirdly, he encountered some, some challenges to his ministry, to his personal life. That is the crux of the whole matter this morning, that particular challenge. But to set the stage, notice he was sent to solve a problem. And the problem was Jeroboam. And Jeroboam actually was God's solution to another problem. If you know the story, Solomon, Solomon apostatized. He allowed his wives to influence him. And he left, he left the Lord. He left his love for Christ. He left his love for God. And so God wrenched the kingdom away from Solomon and said to him that his son, his son also would not inherit. And so God, God put another man, another man to come in to be his, his instrument. And that was Jeroboam. And God said to Jeroboam by way of the prophet, if you're faithful to me and if you're loyal to me, then I will make you an enduring name. But the, the solution becomes the problem. Because Jeroboam, instead of staying faithful to God and to the call that God gave to him, Jeroboam twisted and turned on God. And in chapter 12, you find, chapter 12 and verse 25, you find the crisis that this man came to resolve, this man of God. It says, Then Jeroboam built Shechem in the hill country of Ephraim, and he lived there. And he went out from there and built Penuel. And Jeroboam said in his heart, Now the kingdom will return to the house of David. If this people go up to offer sacrifices in the house of the Lord at Jerusalem, then the heart of this people will return to their Lord, even to Rehoboam, the king of Judah. And they will kill me and return to Rehoboam, king of Judah. And so in Jeroboam's heart, he says, you know, I'm about to lose my grip on this kingdom that I've received, these ten tribes, and they're going to be slipping back to where they came from. They're going to go back to Rehoboam whom they said they would not follow, but Rehoboam has had a change of heart now, and Rehoboam is listening to the Lord. And I'm about to lose these people. They're going to go back to him. He devises a plan by which he's going to hold the people in his kingdom. Follow with me. In verse 28. So the king consulted and made two calves, and he said to them, It is too much for you to go up to Jerusalem. Behold your gods, O Israel, that brought you up from the land of Egypt. He set one in Bethel, and the other he put in Dan. Now this thing became a sin for the people, for the people went to worship before the, before the one as far as Dan. And he made houses on high places, and he made priests from among all the people who were not of the sons of Levi. Jeroboam instituted a feast in the eighth month on the fifteenth day of the month, like the feast which is in Judah. And he went up to the altar, and thus he did in Bethel, sacrificing to the calves which he had made. And he stationed in Bethel the priest of the high places which he had made. Then he went up to the altar which he had made in Bethel on the fifteenth day in the eighth month, even in the month which he had devised in his own heart. And he instituted a feast for the sons of Israel, and he went up to the altar to burn incense. Now, Jeroboam did a hold the people. He instituted 
one of the most subtle and deceptive and deadly and damning forms of apostasy that could ever be created. This syncretism of taking the true worship of God and then just modifying it and alter it just enough to have the people think that it's the real thing, but damning enough that if people followed it, there is no God and there is no hope. He went back and captured the two calves that Aaron had. As if to say, this is no new religion. It's the old stuff. It's the old faith that we've had forever. It's the same God that brought us out of the land of Egypt. Behold your God, O Israel, the two calves. Put one in Dan in the north, north part of his kingdom, and one in Bethel in the southern part of the kingdom. And then he went ahead and and selected a priesthood. And they were not from the sons of Levi, from the rank and file of people. Anybody that really wanted to fill the office, he recruited. Second Second Chronicles tells us that the real the, the, the real loyal Levites fled the north. They went south when they saw what was taking place under the reign of Jeroboam. And so they stayed faithful to God. And so to fill the ranks of the new religion that he established, he simply went over and recruited from the rank and file. And then he changed. He changed the location of worship. No longer is Jerusalem, but he made it Dan and Bethel, one cow, one calf in each place. And then he changed the date, the month. It was always the seventh month for the, for the Feast of Tabernacles, but he made it the eighth month to accommodate the later harvest in the north. And so he had this new religion that was really the old religion. And it was all to hold the people, to keep them from leaving him and going to worship in Jerusalem. Very ingenious, very crafty. But sin, look at verse 30. But sin. Now the thing became sin, for the people went to worship before the one as far as Dan. And this becomes, in the rest of the book of Kings, it becomes a refrain that goes, the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. Over and over again becomes the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, of this syncretistic religion that comes in and replaces the true faith. And these people then are held bondage, held captive to this new device, this this thing that, uh, that Jeroboam devised in his own heart. And it becomes a snare to the people of Israel. It becomes a snare for a long, long, long time. Now, friends, you can see the parallels, can't you, today? And if you're a careful student, you can see the parallels that are taking place today. How in an effort to keep people in churches, huh? to keep our flocks from leaving us, and just simply going back into the world or not coming to the church as we have exodus everywhere, we have a tendency, don't we, today to create this new form of religion, which is supposedly the old-time religion under a new name. And so we have it today. From homosexual priests to women in ministry, where the word change and contemporary seem to be, you know, the, the, the words, huh? the buzzwords in our contemporary church life. In many ways, it is simply the old syncretistic effort of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. It's a crisis today. The crisis and so God sends a man. He always sends a man. 
And he sends a man from Judah. He's called the man of God. Look at chapter 13. This man comes with a, a specific call. And so God sends this man. And while Jeroboam is in, the tent, is in Bethel to offer this, this sacrifice, this abomination, this abominable sacrifice to the, uh, to the God that he devised, he says, Behold, there came a man of God from Judah. Verse 2, he cried against the altar by the word of the Lord and said, O altar, altar, thus says the Lord, Behold, a son shall be born to the house of David, Josiah by name. And on you he shall sacrifice the priest of the high places who burn incense on you. And human bones shall be burned on you. Then he gave a sign for the same day, saying, This is the sign which the Lord has spoken. Behold, the altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on, the, on it shall be poured out. Now it came about when the king heard the saying of the man of God, that he cried against the altar in Bethel, that Jeroboam stretched out his hand from the altar, saying, Seize him! But his hand, which he stretched out against him, dried up, so that he could not draw it back to himself. The altar also was slid apart, and the ashes were poured out, from the altar, according to the sign which the man of God had given by the word of the Lord. The king answered and said to the man of God, Please entreat the Lord your God and pray for me that my hand may be restored to me. So the man of God entreated the Lord, and the king's hand was restored to him, and he became as it was before. Then the king said to the man of God, Come home with me and refresh yourself, and I will give you a reward. But the man of God said to the king, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded by me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way which you came. So he went another way, and did not return by the way which he came to Bethel. And so we see in this first section in chapter 13, this man came, came from God with a specific call, and he came to pronounce judgment. He came to cry against the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, to cry out, to call it out, to let it, let it be known that God was displeased with this man's invention. It was something the man devised in his own heart, and, and that God's against it. God didn't want anyone tampering with the way that he had established things. The word of God was clear. There was only one way to worship God, and that was without the formation of idols, any images. There was one sacred place set apart that was in Jerusalem. There was one set of priesthood from the Levites. And, and the order and the month were established. God even said to Moses, see to it that you make everything according to the pattern shown you on that holy mountain. It was very clear. And so the man of God comes and he addresses and he cries against the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. And he says to him that God is going to judge this place. That Josiah, a son of David, would rise up one day and on this very altar, the very altar, the bones of people would be burned. Which means this is not a sacred altar. Be desecrated by burning the bones of people. And so he cried against this. And it happened 300 years later, this prophecy was fulfilled, just like the prophet, just like the man of God said. Cried out against this. 
When God sends a man to solve a problem, he expects the man to cry out. He expects the man to stand tall and identify the sin and identify the problem and identify the issue and cry out against it. That is a task and the job of the man of God. God commissioned him to do that. He also came with a sign to confirm this message. What is interesting as you read the chapter that he's never called a prophet. This man of God is never called a prophet. He's always called the what? The man of God. He's a man that comes from God with a message from God. That's what it is. A man that comes from God, sent by God, with a message from God. And yet, to authenticate, to authenticate the fact that he was a man of God, and he came with a prophetic message from God, he came with a sign. And he mentioned the sign. This is the sign. The altar shall be split apart, and the ashes which are on it shall be poured out. I'm going to call this altar to fall apart, and it, and it did, and the altar did that. You see, this was a, a confirming sign. And God will authenticate. God always authenticates. It was, it was a mosaic, mosaic uh, way of authenticating a true prophet that he comes and what he says will come to pass. And he has the power to do these kinds of things and to work these miracles. And so the man comes. And he gives a sign to Jeroboam. He gives a sign to the nation that what he says is true and that what they are doing is deadly wrong. And then Jeroboam says, seize the man. What happened to his hand? Dried up, paralyzed. I've often said, Lord, why don't you give me that power? <clears throat> there are a whole lot of hands I'd like to dry up, you know, in my ministry. I guess God can't trust me with this power, you know. Uh, he can't trust you either. Otherwise, all of us professors will be paralyzed. <clears throat> Especially Dr. Thomas. So he comes and confirms the word of God. You see, God's word will not return void to him. That God deters anything or any effort at withholding the word of God. Even kings cannot withstand God's word. Gentlemen, be encouraged with that. If you're God's man with God's word to do God's business, be, be confident and be assured that you step out and God is going to honor his word. God is going to honor his word. Like he honored here with this man of God, he will do the same thing with you. Perhaps not in like fashion, not such dramatic, miraculous fashion, but in some ways you will see God there, God in your life. Because God wants his word to go out. And when you and I go out to stand forth and declare, thus saith the Lord, and call out and cry out against, against sin and against that which violates the word of God, then we can do so with all confidence and all boldness, knowing that God is going to take his word and make it go out and accomplish his purposes. And then nothing can thwart the purposes and plan of God. Didn't he say, heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will Never pass away. That's the power of it. Talking to one of our a new believers, new Christian, and he's trying to win his wife to the Lord. He says, Pastor, the other day something happened. He says, I was trying to share with my wife. She asked me about the Bible, and I began to open the Bible, began to share the things of God. 
And then she got real nervous. And she began to shake. And she said, that's enough, that's enough, that's enough. She said, I was just reading the Bible. That's the power of God's word in the lives of people. This is God's word. This isn't just a book. This isn't just a text. This is the word of God. Amen? And so it is. And so it is. And so he went out with a specific call of God to cry out against the sin of Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and to confirm this, confirm this cry with a sign that God had given to him, which became a twofold sign, not just the altar, but the withered hand. And then something interesting. He says something that all of us here this morning need to take heart. When the king then invited him to heal his hand, which he did. And this man is, man of God is, oh, way better man than I am. I would not have healed his hand. I would have paralyzed the other one too. <clears throat> and he healed him. And so the king then invites him to come to his house and to refresh himself. And he's going to give him a reward, some kind of prize, got a perk. And here is where it's, the man of God makes this statement. Follow with me. In verse 8 it says, If you were to give me half your house, I would not go with you, nor would I eat bread or drink water in this place. For so it was commanded me by the word of the Lord, saying, You shall eat no bread, nor drink water, nor return by the way by which you came. He said, I have explicit word from God. I am not, I am not, I am not. I'll repeat it again. I am not able to eat with anybody or drink with anybody, or even to tarry, or take a step back in my journey. But I'm to go give my message, and then head right on where I came from. You say, what, what does this mean? It simply means, gentlemen, no compromise, what it means. Write it down, no compromise. He says, I'm not permitted to compromise. I'm not permitted to sit down, and, and fellowship with a reprobate like you or anybody else up in this territory. Or what fellowship have light and darkness? Hmm? You've heard of it before, haven't you? What has Belial in harmony with Christ? That's the lesson. That's the lesson. No compromise. See, God wanted to deliver the message to Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, and to the people of the northern kingdom, that this was something that God was not going to tolerate at all. He was going to lay the axe to the root of the tree and cut it down once and for all. No compromise, no, no, no messing around, no dilly-dally, no rope-a-dope, none of this thing. He's going to lay it down and lay it to the root of the tree and cut the thing down and say, this is not, this is unacceptable to me. And the man was the message. The man was the message. No compromise. You know, we need, to, we need to write that name someplace, you know, when you, when you write your name, you know, so-and-so, so-and-so, you know, MDiv, THM, you know, THD, PhD, McDLT. <laughs> you should also put no compromise. A man that does not compromise. See, this is, this is one of the greatest reasons why 
we fail in our ministries is because we compromise along the way. We take this man of God who sits in a place like this, who's committed to the word of God, then he steps out and then comes the challenge. And that's the challenge that comes now to the man of God. He's challenged with the whole issue of compromise. And it comes in two ways. It comes, first of all, from Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He comes and he wants the man to, the man to compromise. There's a book in my library by Os Guinness called Dining with the Devil. What a powerful book. And it's a book talking about the, the trends of the megachurches and their tendency to compromise, to compromise the message and to compromise the people of God. Dining with the devil. And here our man of God is under a temptation then also to dine with the devil that takes two forms. He takes the form of worldliness, first of all, epitomized by Jeroboam, the son of Nebat, who invites him to come and sit down with him and to have this, this sumptuous meal with him and, and to give him a reward because. And worldly, the world does challenge us, my friends. We are challenged all the time. The world is out there and challenges our ministry and not a few of us are going to succumb to the temptations and the challenges to compromise with the world. You see them everywhere. You see the carcasses all along the way of, of men that one time were committed to the things of God, but the world enticed them and they went by the wayside. The demises of this world, who having loved this present world, have forsaken the things of God. They've forsaken the ministry. And Jeroboam comes. And the world comes and does perhaps what he did to this man of God, he does to us. Jeroboam, first of all, you know, threatens him with persecution. Seize the man! Seize the man! And you know, friends, uh, persecution paralyzes preachers. Yeah, the fear of man is a snare. I don't know about you, but I, you know, I'm afraid. The world, persecution bothers me. It does. Subtle forms bother me. And there's been times when I have not preached as I should have preached, have not cried out as I should have cried out because of the fear of persecution that has all these different subtle forms. And that's going to be yours and mine as well. And then the perks that come from the world. Man huh? offers them a sumptuous meal, a reward, financial perhaps. And that can come and also, and pleasures pacify passionate preachers. There are worldly pleasures out there, and we can so easily turn our thoughts on homes and things. We can turn our thoughts on the acquisition of wealth, the acquisition of possessions. Every now and then, even in the ranks of our seminarians, they drop out for different reasons. Because they, they come here and they think that somehow they see all this wonderful stuff out there and the beauty of it. And before you know it, instead of focusing on your studies and your preparation, you're focusing on the acquisition of wealth. And on buying your homes and buying your cars and all these different things. And so this attraction of Southern California, of the stuff that, as you notice, can so easily be consumed in smoke. Million-dollar homes gone overnight. And God is saying, listen, watch out for these, these temptations that compromise your faith. Yeah, but my, but my wife and my children, they, they what? What did God call you to do? That's the main thing. And pleasures pacify us. Prestige can do the same thing. The world has a tendency, and it's interesting how the world does that to us. 
It's interesting to see what happened as a result of 9-11, how the world wants to get in the bandwagon, and before you know it, all these religious guys are lining up. We're lining up with all these other different isms. Let's compromise. Let's compromise. All because the world, the world called the prayer meeting, the world called this religious observance. They say that many, many a preacher becomes a wimp in the White House and in the clubhouse. They're bold in their pulpits, and the minute they're invited to the White House, they become little wimps because of the prestige of the White House. May God help us and keep us from that. Amen or not? May God help us and keep us from that. I like this man of God. Don't you like him? He said, no. I can't go back with you. You can have your, you can have your pot roast. No, you can have your Mercedes. You can have all of that. I have a call from God. And God said to me not to eat, not to drink, not to tarry, not to go even step one step, not even to throw my car in reverse. And I'm not going. He won the day, didn't he? He won the day. No, he won the first battle. The day's not over yet. Look at verse 12. Verse 11. Now an old prophet was living in Bethel, and his sons came and told him all the deeds which the man of God had done that day in Bethel. The words which he had spoken to the king, these they also related to their father. Their father said to them, Which way did he go? Now his sons had, sent, had seen the way which this man of God had come, or came from Judah had gone. Then he said to his sons, Saddle the donkey for me. So they saddled the donkey for him, and he rode away on it. So he went after the man of God and found him sitting under an oak. That's actually the oak. And he said to him, Are you the man of God who came from Judah? And he said, I am. Then he said, Come home with me and eat bread. He said, I cannot return with you, nor go with you, nor will I... Will I eat bread or drink water with you in this place? For a command came to me by the word of the Lord. You shall not eat bread, eat no bread, nor drink water there. Do not return by going the way which you came. He said to him, I also am a prophet like you. And an angel spoke to me by the word of the Lord, saying, Bring him back with you to your house, that he may eat bread and drink water. But he lied to him. So he went back with him and ate bread in his house and drank water. Now it came about as they were sitting down at the table that the word of the Lord came to the prophet who had brought him back. And he cried to the man of God who came from Judah saying, Thus says the Lord, because you have disobeyed the commandment of the Lord and have not observed the commandment which the Lord your God commanded you, but you've returned and eaten bread and drank water in the place of which he said to you, Eat no bread, drink no water, your body shall not come to the grave of your fathers. It came after that. He had eaten bread, and after he had drunk, that he saddled the donkey for the prophet whom he had brought back. Now he had gone. A lion met him on the way and killed him. And his body was thrown on the road and the donkey standing beside it. The lion also was standing beside the body. And behold, men passed by and saw the body thrown by the road and the lion standing beside the body. So they came and told it in the city where the old prophet lived. Now when the prophet who brought him back from the way heard it, he said, It is the man of God who disobeyed the commandment of the Lord. Therefore the Lord has given him to the lion and has torn him and killed him according to the word of the Lord which he spoke. 
Boy, is that sobering or is that sobering? Compromise. See, compromised. This is the greatest temptation we face today, gentlemen. It's not always, it's not the world. It's, it's from within. It's the old prophets. It's the evangelicals. It's those that are in our ranks that are really sucking the life out of so many sound Bible students and Bible preachers and men of God. And this is what happened to this man, this old prophet. And commentators tell us that he really was a prophet of God. He's not a false prophet. He was a prophet of God that compromised and joined Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. He was a man that compromised. And he comes and he talks and addresses this man of God. And he, and, he, and he woos him and he causes him to compromise. And so he comes and he's a, he's a compromiser. That's what he is. He's compromised. His own sons are over there worshiping with Jeroboam, the son of Nebat. That's why they brought him back the news. Because they were there. They were lifting up their hands to the cows, to the calves. They were swaying. They're swaying with the calves. They were there. They were there doing the stuff, doing the stuff, and shaking hands with all these other robed people when the man of God stood in there and actually began to cry out against the altar. That's why they knew, because they were compromisers. The man was a compromiser. His sons were compromisers. He was a compromiser. He was an old compromising prophet. That's what he was. And if you're not careful, friend, They'll take this old attitude, this old compromising pride, come along your side and will woo you and deceive you and make you compromise too. They'll use their experience because they're old. You know, well, I've been around the block a few times. Wait till you're in the ministry a few years, then you'll know better. Or they come because somehow they are, they had the institutions, you know what I'm saying? Because they are the denominational heads. Or they hold, they hold chairs in different places. And they'll try to, try to do that to us. You know, I have a little brochure here. Of, you know, it's beyond, beyond all limits, too. And then faces in the back of all these people. What a mixture of animals. Sound, sound, sound evangelical men. And then right next to them, someone else. You say, what in the world do they have? What business do they have in this list? But that's how they do it. They mix them together. Before you know you have these old prophets who've been around the block a few times. Who some have compromised. They've compromised. And they want you to compromise as well. Friends, let's beware. He's also a complacent prophet, was he not? He had a nice home. They invited the prophet to come. This man of God to come and share this meal with him. It's amazing how many of us get wild by that. We get wild by success. All these church growth, all these new renewal things, are always held in these mega places. You ever notice that? Mega places. And that's how they wow you. They wow you with all the stuff that's out there. I mean, who doesn't want to be successful? I want to be successful, don't you? I mean, somehow we are tempted to compromise because we want to be successful. And they come and they parade all their successes, parade all their stuff, their buildings, their ministries. And somehow we feel that in order for us to have that, We'll need to compromise. And that's the temptation with hanging around these people. Let's be careful in regards to that. One fellow went to visit Rome one day, went many centuries ago, and 
As he walked, while walking through Rome, one of the fellows touring, giving the tour said, as you can tell by all the gold and silver here that we have in, in our church in Rome that we cannot say, like the Apostle Peter said, silver and gold have we none. And the man said to him, neither can you say, arise and walk. You have no power. Listen, fellows, you all have your price. I have mine and you have yours. Know what it is. And watch out. Because once these old prophets find out what your price is, they will write you a check. Once these old prophets know what your price is, they will entice you right where it's at. And you have to be willing to say and walk away from that. He was also a liar, wasn't he? This is a bull-faced liar. When I became a Christian, this is a <laughs> hard to understand how evangelical that, that non the Christians would lie it was for me. Uh, it was a major thing. Here's a prophet that lied. An angel spoke to me. An angel came and brought me the word of God. And so you see, your word was superseded by the angel that came to say to him, come and be with me. And, and so it comes. Oh, friends, this is, this is where it's happening everywhere. This deceptive, this deception by, by these big compromisers making us compromise as well. You have your eyes focused, you have your stuff focused, and somehow you think that somehow you're going to be going this way, and, 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 and it's all compromise by deceptions. I recall years ago, I took my staff to a, a church growth meeting not too far from here. And uh, it's seven of us went to this church growth thing, and we sat in the church, and, and they were talking about ways to have the church grow. And the fellow got up and he said, here's was my secret to how the church grew. Is that right here in this auditorium, right there, Jesus appeared to me. And he gave me a vision for this church. Right there in the, in the auditorium, right there he stood and he gave me a vision for the church. And everybody stood and listened to this. And that was, that was the impetus, that was the power, that was the, 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 the main thing for the growth of this church. I said to our staff, all right, everybody out of the pool, let's go. We don't need this trash. We don't need these lies. We don't need these lies. Jesus did not appear to this man. That's a lie. I've been around for a long, long time. I've sat under those that know. I mean, if anybody should have seen Jesus, it should have been Dr. Thomas. <laughs> Speak to me. Talk to him. Talk to me. He hasn't seen Jesus. You know, anybody, anybody for sure should have talked to Jesus, man face to face. It should have been Dr. Roscoe. That's a lie, friend. But that's, see, that's the power of religion. That's how they're lying to us. Visions and healings and miracles and, and some guy blowing on his choir. They're all falling like, 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 like bowling pins. Come on now. Come on now. Don't be lying to us. Don't be lying to us. And trying to make us buy into the system of growth by all this deception. It's time for us, we just say, you know, knock it off. We want us to compromise with them. Skewed statistics. Yeah, I just brought this by illustration. Church growth, church growth, set of the art. C. Peter Ragnar along with Will Arn and Elmer Towns. The first book that Elmer Towns wrote on church growth was all ten largest churches. And there were each one of them fundamentalists, fundamentalists died in the world, bleeding gospel churches. And now here, 
the 20 largest churches in the world. The first one is, the largest church is St. Peter's in Rome. That's a Roman Catholic church. That's not even a church. (laughs) Speak to me. That's not a church. What is this? What is this? That is a lie, my friends. That's not even a church. We're talking church growth with with a Roman Catholic church as being number one. That is a lie. Speak to me. That's enough to make your chili hot. You know what I'm saying? It's enough to do something to you. And people doing ministry, doing ministry, wowing people with choirs and presentations. And we don't know that half the crowd on the stage is pagan. Pagan. If I got some pagan performers, I could pack my church out every night. And so could you. But that's, that's, not, that's not honest, is it? That's not apples and apples. That's not even apples, not even apples and oranges. That's apples and rats. That's not even the same thing. He lied to him. And this poor prophet fell for that. And he went and compromised his message, compromised his call. And there he sat with this compromising fat prophet, old fat prophet. And there he, he prostituted his ministry because he believed the lie. Sorry for this guy, but God did not feel sorry for him. God killed him. And he became to the nation of, 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 of Israel and to Jeroboam and to, and to the prophet and to everybody that God keeps his word. And even the smallest infraction, God is going to deal with it. Imagine the major infraction of Jeroboam's sin. If this little prophet of God, who was God's man, if God deals with him this way, how imagine the rest of us. <gasps> That's the message. But the message for us, friends, is don't compromise your message for anything or anybody. No compromise. Alex N.C. Montoya should be the way you read it. No compromise. And so should you. We want to end well, do we not? In 1985, in June, my father passed away. He was a man on his last his last breath, his last heartbeat. Mama was there, all the kids were there, all six of us. And all the tubes were in his, in his body and the monitor was going and we saw the very last heartbeat and then he was gone. Mama pulled all the, uh, all the things out of his nose and cleaned him up, closed his eyes, and then we all held hands. And we gave thanks to God. The Lord has given and the Lord has taken away. He was a simple man that was faithful to one wife all of his life. He had six children. He loved them all. He fed them. He clothed them. Protected them. He left them no money. He left them no large inheritance. But he left them a legacy that here's a man that lived well and finished well. May the day come when you also give your last breath and your church surrounds you and your fellow seminarians surround you that they can say about you. Maybe you don't have a big church and a big building, a big ministry, but they can say this man lived well and he ended well. Faithful to God's call. Lord, help us to be men that are faithful, 
to the very last breath and moment of our lives. Help us, O Christ, we ask. Amen.